0: This morning we're turning to John chapter 5 in our continued series of sermons on John. Remember the big question that hangs above above the gospel of John is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why should I be convinced that Jesus is the one to believe in, to put my hope and my trust in? So John chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. Again, I'd encourage you to follow along either in your Bibles or in the screen behind me. As I read these words of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, That man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, call, even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the Word of God. Would you bow with me in prayer? Holy Father, you've preserved this Word for us this morning, and you've promised in your Word that your Spirit would lead us into truth. In fact, Jesus made that promise before he ascended. He said that after He left, He would send His Spirit who would lead us into all truth and, remind, and would remind us of the words that He spoke to us while He is here. And now we simply place ourselves before You. You are the living and triune God. You're the maker and sustainer of all things. you redeemer. You are sanctifier. And we pray that whatever way You would choose to use Your Word this morning, we would listen, we would hear, And your Spirit would do a great thing in each heart of those who are here this morning in this building and also those who are joining us over the Internet. Father, you are able to do more even than we ask or imagine according to the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray, amen. The most interesting thing is that the man sat on that chair for his entire shift And when he was finished with his shift, someone else came and sat in that chair for all of his shift. And every day of every week of every month for years on end, there were people sitting in those chairs in that chair every hour of every day. (laughs) You might wonder why were they sitting there? The reason they were sitting there is because the inmate inside of that cell was so dangerous to himself that unless someone was there watching him every moment of every day, that man would harm himself. He had already done so to the point you could barely recognize him. I remember the first time I walked past that cell and I asked that man sitting in that chair, why are you here? And he explained it to me. And I said, has this ever changed? And he said, it's never changed. I don't think it's ever going to change. This situation is hopeless. I can imagine for the family this man who was in this prison cell, they also felt like he was hopeless. I'm imagining that because as far as I know, he never had anyone come to visit him. The only people who ever saw him were the guards who were in charge of keeping him from harming himself. In fact, there were many men and women in that prison who never had visitors. In fact, they were there by themselves. And one of the most common things I heard was, this is hopeless. And it's not just for prisoners or those who are seriously ill that there hangs over you this sense it's hopeless. There are points in everyone's life, maybe even at the point of your life this morning, where it feels like it's hopeless. There's really no chance it's going to change. You're simply where you're at, and it might get a little better, it might get a little worse, but this is life now. And from this point forward, you better adjust because there will be no change. Change. I'm entirely confident when we read John chapter 5, that was the attitude of this man whom Jesus met. And this morning, what I'd like to do is explain to you how this man's life changed. And even more than how this man's life changed, how the compassionate power of Jesus Christ changes lives. So that this is more than just a story of one man in one place many years ago who had his life changed. No, the compassionate power of God in Jesus Christ continues to change lives. There are two things I want to explain to you from this passage. The first is simply explaining to you what this compassionate power of God in Jesus Christ is. And then the second thing I want to explain for you is something that may seem Very, very strange. In fact, you might have noted it as I worked through this passage, read through it with you, and that is where Jesus says to this man, be careful lest you sin in a worse way than before. I want to explain to you what that's about, what the worst sin is, because it helps us understand the compassionate power of God in Jesus Christ as well. And it's meant to give you hope. When this passage opens, there is a time and there is a place that is noted. You see that, verse 1 it says, Now after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this, of course, ties back to the passage that came before, where Jesus heals an official's son, a man who comes asking, really commanding Jesus to heal his son soon becomes humble in his attitude, and he sees that he needs Jesus. And it is from that perspective of humility that John introduces us then to another healing story. And the place in which this story takes place is in Jerusalem because there is a festival there. We don't know which festival it is. John doesn't know, but there's a festival. The reason why there would be many people in Jerusalem And in Jerusalem at this time, no matter what the festival was, there was a place called the Sheep Gate, and near that Sheep Gate was a very large pool. In fact, it is believed to be two pools. If you're wondering how large these pools were, if you're small, I'll tell you how large they were. They were about as large as a football field each and about 20 feet deep. Immense pools. These were pools that were used by the people of Jerusalem to clean themselves. But this story says there's something very interesting about who was around those pools. It wasn't just those who came to clean themselves. There were also porches around these pools. And it was common for people who were in need to gather at this place where so many people from Jerusalem would come. And those who were in need would sit there and beg for help. So, if you can just imagine in your mind a place with many, many people, crowds of people, and among those who were in the crowds were those who came to beg for help. Sir, can you help me? Do you have a little something to eat? Do you have money that you can spare? So that the sounds of this pool were people splashing, maybe even having a good time along with the pitiful cries of those who need help. And there was a legend that was attached to this pool. It was believed that at a certain point, there was an angel who came down, and he would stir the waters. And whoever would jump into the pool first, if you were sick or or needed some help of some sort, you were blind, you were lame, you would jump into that pool, and the first person to jump into that pool would be healed. That was the legend. Imagine having no other way of possibly hoping that life would change except to sit by a pool, and when the water was stirred, when the legend seemed to come true, that you would jump in first. That was your only hope of healing. And Jesus, the passage says, sees a man there. He had been an invalid, no way to take care of himself, to get around for 30 years. Years. He could not help himself now. He could not help himself. For all of his life, he was an invalid, and there seemed to be no change that would ever happen that would make his life different in the future. To everyone else who was there, it was simply that man there again. 38 years. He had struggled most of his adult life. He had probably come to the sheep's gate and sat by that pool begging. For help and hoping that someone would give. Can you imagine that kind of life? It may seem like a sad existence, really. That's what your life consists of every day, sitting next to a pool, begging for help, and hoping that if this legend came true, you could jump into the pool first and you would be healed. A sad existence. Pitiful existence. Really no hope that anything will change. But the story says that along comes Jesus and He notices this man. There were likely many people there, but Jesus notices this particular man. Among all those who are sitting there hoping something would happen, begging for help, Jesus notices this man and he asks the question that maybe seems ridiculous if that's not disrespectful to our Lord. He asks the man, do you want to be healed? Can you imagine, do you want to be healed? Imagine in your mind just for a moment the thing that you wish would change the most and I come to, to the sur- after the service to you and say... Do you want your financial difficulties to go away? Do you want your marriage to be restored? Do you want healing? Do you want your child to come to faith in Jesus Christ? Whatever it is that you think about the most, maybe you laid awake last night mulling over Wishing, hoping that this thing would change. Imagine that I came to you after the service and I said, do you want that to happen? You'd say, pastor, don't be ridiculous. Of course I do. It's the most important thing that I think about. Yes, I want to be healed. And Jesus simply says to the man, take up your bed and walk. And of all the incredible things that man expected when he went to the pool that day, he may have thought to himself, I hope someone gives me enough money to buy food, maybe even enough for tomorrow. He could have never imagined it as wildest dream that along would come Jesus and Jesus would single him out and say to him, take up your bed and walk and the man would be healed. It's an incredible story, isn't it? If you've read this before and you haven't been impressed with the surprise of this story, here it is. This is amazing. It's incredible. It's almost beyond your belief. But what I want you to see this morning in this passage is the thing that John the writer highlights. What John wants us to see is the compassion of Jesus. His mercy. He sees a man who's been written off by everyone who will never be able to walk, someone who's barely enough to get enough to eat, to find enough to eat, someone who is probably very lonely, likely despised in his society, and he asks him, do you want to be healed? This is not the official, the man of standing and of power at the end of John chapter 4. This is not someone who can give back to Jesus. You can imagine the crowds thinking, well, the official, naturally Jesus would want to do him a favor. It's all a matter of quid quo pro. He helps me, I'll help him. No, this man is on the other end of the societal spectrum. This man can offer nothing to Jesus. He is poor. He is lame. He's not even named in this story. And yet Jesus heals him. Others might not care, but Jesus does. And this is the most striking part of this passage. He is simply one lame man among many sick. Everyone else passes him by, but Jesus did not. He's struck this morning by the mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus' command to this man to take up his bed and walk echoes an Old Testament passage that maybe you don't remember, but certainly if you were Jewish and you heard this story, you would have been struck. Isaiah 35, verse 6 says, And those who wait upon the Lord shall rise and leap like deer. In Jesus Christ, the separation between the predicament and God's power Is removed. There's no distance between the power of God and the predicament of this man. Jesus brings those two together in a startling way. And I want you to hear the compassion of Jesus in this this passage, the power of Jesus applied in a compassionate way. That your attention is drawn to the mercy of your God. That He hears. He sees, he knows, Jesus can heal. The emphasis is not simply on the fact that this man is healed, it is the spirit in which Jesus does so. Again, we might not know the man's name, we might not know anything else about him. In fact, after the story is finished, he largely disappears. We know nothing about Him. As I was preparing this sermon, I can imagine I was thinking, someday in eternal life, I hope to meet this man jumping and leaping and Him saying to me, I'm the man that Jesus healed at the sheep gates," And we can rejoice with Him that the mercy of our God applied to difficult circumstances. But here's the thing I want to say to you this morning. That's not just true for this man. It's not just true for him. The history of the church is made up of people where the powerful compassion of Jesus has been applied. You may look at your own life and say, well, there are many places I wish it'd be applied right now, Pastor. If you really would ask me after this sermon, where would you like to see it applied? And I told you and it could be applied right here and right now, I would be ecstatic The fact that it is not applied in every way, in the way that we have desired, does not take away the fact that it is applied in ways that are startling and true. And unlike this man who sat in this prison cell and the guard who watched him day after day after day and said to me, there is no hope. In the compassionate power of Jesus Christ, there is hope. There is. And it may not turn out to be the answer that you're exactly seeking. If you're ill this morning, and we prayed for a whole list of people just a moment ago who are ill, and you're on that list and you say to yourself, if only Jesus would walk by and say to me, you're healed and I'd be healed. Then I would see the compassionate power of Jesus Christ, and I would believe. Let me tell you, friend, the Lord knows how to apply the compassionate power in exactly the way that you need. There are many testimonies of that. It's not just this man. It happens over and over again. And the Lord applies it in exactly the way that is appropriate for you. It is not that his character changes or his desire changes. No, the Lord uses the circumstances. Sometimes he does miraculous things that amaze us and surprise us. Other times he uses different ways of drawing us to himself and sanctifying us. But in every moment, what I want you to hear and see is this. He is a compassionate and powerful Savior. And ironically, perhaps, that is emphasized in the other half of our passage where we talk about the greatest sin. (laughs) I want to pause for just a moment. I was reading a book on homiletics, and the man who was writing the book said, you know, it's really good practice for pastors sometimes to pause during their sermon and give a lighthearted story or some illustration that gives everyone some mental pause before they move on to the next thing. And I reflected and I thought, I don't know if I do that. Well, let me try something with you this morning. And it's not going to be lighthearted, I'm sorry. I want you to think with me about the greatest sin that you can imagine. What is the greatest sin that you can imagine? I'd be amazed if you didn't think of some sin that's been committed against you. Or maybe you think of something historical in my mind because of my family and especially my wife's family's history, I think immediately of people during World War II who were Nazi collaborators, who who would point out there are people hiding in that home, there are people helping Jews in that place go and get them, arrest them, bring them to the prison camp? In my mind, that is horrible. The deception is so deep. That sounds like a terrible sin to me. Maybe the sin that comes into your mind is different. Maybe it's someone who's deceived you personally. Maybe someone that you confided in and they weren't trustworthy. Maybe the sin is something else. Whatever that sin is, what is the greatest sin that your mind can imagine? Well, in this passage, Jesus points out (laughs) what I'm going to tell you I believe to be the worst sin. In order to understand that, you have to see how verse 18 ends with what strikes us is almost an incidental comment. It says at the end of verse 18, after Jesus heals a man, he heals someone. Can you imagine? Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, and the man stood up and walked. Amazing. After that, it simply notes in the text that it was a Sabbath. you were like, okay, very nice to know. Let's move on. It didn't work that way. What we read afterward is that the Jews saw the man walking and they said to him, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? You know that's not supposed to happen. Now you might ask yourself the question, was that supposed to happen or not? Maybe we'll go down that trail a little bit. Would that be okay? You do know, of course, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says he rested on the seventh day. The fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments says that's a pattern that we all ought to follow. Six days of work and one of rest. That's a good pattern. It's not only a pattern that we know and we ought to practice. It's written into the very law of God. It's been something that God has commended to us as a people of God forever. The Jews knew this. And so the desire to keep the Sabbath day as holy meant the Jews went to great lengths to guard against anything that would offend the holiness of that day. Let me give you an example. Like carrying your bed on the Sabbath. (laughs) There were even rules about if you could pick up a child. That's okay. But if the child was holding something in his or her hand, that's no good. Shouldn't do that. You might think, well, that's rather silly, isn't it? that the Jews constructed these laws to guard the laws of God. At certain points, it went far beyond silly to offensive. But there's a reason why this story is crafted in this way. And it is because John, guided by the Spirit of God, is begging us to ask this important question as we read this account. The question's a simple one. It's this. Why do these Jews care more about carrying your bed on the Sabbath than the fact a man was healed? (laughs) Doesn't that strike you as strange? The man who could not walk for 38 years all of a sudden can walk and all the Jews can say is, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? It's not right. It would be like you becoming a millionaire, not commending that you play the lottery, but let's say that you did and you won $100 million. You walked in and your spouse says, I heard you You won $100 million today. Why are your shoes on the carpet coming into the house? You would say, what in the world? This small offense is so incomparable to the greatness of the news. Why are you asking? The contrast between the two is meant to alert us to something very important about the compassionate power of Jesus. What it's meant to illustrate for us is that there is a tendency that exists in the heart of every single person to observe the compassionate mercy of Jesus. Listen to this, friend. To see the compassionate mercy of Jesus Applied in the lives of people and go by that quickly as though it does not matter. Do you know how easy that is? Do you want to see me really get passionate about something? I am struck with how often in the church of Jesus Christ. We move very quickly beyond the fact that we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are amazing demonstrations of the compassionate power of Jesus, and yet we find the smallest things to point out in each other. Is that not true? Maybe you think, well, that's a bit much, Pastor. We're sitting here together. Maybe I should just ask you in your home if you're married, if you have children. You wake up in the morning next to your dear wife and say, thank you, Father, that you've given me this workmanship in Christ Jesus created to do good works. You have saved her from out of darkness into light. You have transformed her life. Is that what you say to God? Or do you say, why isn't my wife more like this? When you see your children, do you say, I see the Spirit of God at work in them? They're amazing Can you imagine their hearts are cold and hard apart from the Spirit of God? But I see indications of the way that God is at work. Do you rejoice in that or do you say, and they refuse to pick up their room? It is not as though those things do not matter. Certainly the Sabbath is a fourth commandment. We ought to observe it. It is significant. It is important. Let me commend to you a day of worship and of rest. But when the commandment becomes more important than the compassionate mercy of Jesus Christ, our priorities are reversed and we become, may I say the word, legalists. Our desire is not that many would know this compassionate mercy of Christ. The desire is that more and more we've conformed to what I believe they ought to be doing. What is this great sin? Look at verse 14. Jesus finds this man in the temple after he has been healed. And Jesus warns the man to be careful lest something worse, something worse happens. Verse 14, after Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See that you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. You're like, well, what would be worse? The man was lame for 38 years. What could be worse than that? Is he now going to be blind and lame? (laughs) Is that what Jesus is going to do? Is he going to be punished? No, the way the passage is set up is not meant to lead to that conclusion. No, the way Jesus says, do not keep on sinning, means Jesus is not intending for us To think this man committed some sin that led to his lame condition or that there was some sin that he was harboring in his heart now, that because he was doing it meant there was an inevitable judgment to come. No, Jesus is speaking in general terms. He is speaking in grand terms. He is saying there is a sin that appeals to your hearts and make sure you do not fall into it because if you do, it would be worse even than being lame. What is the sin that Jesus is guarding this man against? What is the sin that Jesus is warning you against? In the flow of this passage, what makes most clear, what is made most clear, is that Jesus is contrasting the compassionate power that he possesses with the Jews who lose all sight of it. He is contrasting the mercy of Jesus Christ with the legalism of the Jews. What is the worst thing that this man could do? What is the worst sin that we could commit? What is worse than a judgment that could lead to being lame? What is the worst thing that we could do? It is this. John is screaming it at us. You don't hear that here. And I'm not going to use my voice to do it, but this is what John is screaming he is screaming, the worst thing to do is to miss the powerful mercy of God and Jesus Christ. That's the worst thing that can happen. It really is the worst. The universal scope of Jesus' words is meant to tell the man not to sin by missing the powerful mercy of Jesus Christ. The man came to that pool that morning, hoping for the supernatural stirring of the waters that he could jump in and heal. His day, he would have thought at that moment, would be perfect if all of a sudden he could stand up and walk. And Jesus made that happen. But he did more than simply heal the man. What he did was show that man, the Jews, the world, and you and me as well, That is a powerful mercy that is found nowhere else in the world. You notice how the Jews respond to this? They raise a theological objection. Jesus ends his conversation with the Jews who object. They say, How could you do this on the Sabbath? On the Sabbath, Jesus. How could you do it on the Sabbath? Jesus says, well, there's this. My father's working until now, and I am working. In verses 17 and 18 go on to say, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. How was he making himself equal with God? If you think about the way in which the Sabbath was given to us, six days Our Creator God worked, the seventh He rested. The fourth commandment says you ought to rest as well. Spend your day in worship. Spend the day resting, reflecting on the greatness of God. And Jesus says that's true. His Father created and then rested. But His Father did not cease to do anything, did He? No, His Father is still doing. He's upholding the universe by the word of His mouth. And even more, after rebellion that led to the fall into sin, the Bible says the Father set out to do the most grandiose work the world has ever known. He sent His Son into the world to save sinners and to restore creation. Oh, Jesus is saying it's not as though the Father didn't do any work. You know, the Father is working. His creative, his creative power has ceased, but His upholding and His redeeming power is being applied and Jesus is saying i am here to do that work and that's why the jews hated him to believe that jesus is the incarnation of the redemptive intent of jesus christ was more was more than they could believe you see what's happening here said john in such a beautiful and masterful way is saying what jesus warned The lame man against, the worst sin, denying the powerful mercy of Jesus Christ is exactly what the Jews did. And so this morning, I have two things to say to you as I conclude this sermon. The first is an easy thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a glad thing. I say it with joy. The powerful mercy of Jesus Christ is God's redemptive intention in this world. There is nothing beyond beyond the power of our Savior. No matter how hopeless your situation might be, let me assure you this morning, there is hope in Jesus Christ. He loves you. And even though you may not see exactly what this man saw, that is Jesus saying to you, rise up and walk, you've been healed, it's all gone. Jesus is absolutely applying that compassion, that power into your life in some way. It may be harder for you to see. You may struggle, wrestle with believing it is true. But John says in huge and powerful words, it is absolutely the case. But the other thing I have to say to you this morning is a warning. And I say this with a solemn face and with some dread in my heart. That it also is a temptation to every person, especially religious people, to look past the powerful mercy of Jesus Christ... And to instead of reveling in the powerful mercy of Jesus Christ, to look at all the places in which the objects of that mercy, other people, are less than we want them to be. To focus not on the mercy of Jesus Christ, but to have a condemning spirit of those who are around the psalmist says, The law of the Lord is good, reviving the soul. That's absolutely true. But that law, that law is to be followed by those who have been transformed out of love, <laughs> not out of compulsion. And, friend, this morning, as you listen to the sermon, think well and deep, both about the mercy of Jesus Christ, but then the warning that is equally entailed. May you know clearly, and may you hold on with all of your heart to the compassionate power that gives us hope like no other. Would you join me in prayer? Father, a few chapters later in John chapter 12, there's a request made when people come to see Jesus they ask his disciples show us Jesus bring us to him and we ask that that is what might have happened here this morning that we would come to Jesus and we would know in him a hope that is unlike any other hope that might exist father in whatever way you ask uh, we ask that you would apply that to our hearts do not simply what we ask do it in a perfect way in your way even if we cannot understand what you were doing in the moment we thank you we rejoice in all the ways in which we see that happening already we rejoice lord in those that you're doing a great work father you are good and we are thankful for your son jesus christ and so we come with hope and with expectation That the same Jesus who applied this compassion so powerfully in this man's heart would do that also for each one of us and many more. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.